Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to continue on this morning looking at these four titles that were given to Christ 700 years before he came uh, in earthly terms, in earthly flesh. Uh, And this morning we look at one that's a little bit confusing to us. Because all of a sudden we see this term, everlasting father, and and all of a sudden we're going, okay, wait, wait, I, I thought he was the son and not the father. And so is there confusion here from Isaiah? Uh, let's go back just a step. Have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to, to someone? I, I mean, it's one of those things that is so, so hard. Uh, how God is one, yet three distinct persons. It's one of the foundational parts of our Christian theology, and yet so confusing to, to many of us, even that love Jesus. Martin Luther, uh, one of the theologians of, of the past, said it this way. To deny the Trinity is to risk our salvation. To try to explain the Trinity is to risk our sanity. And whether you agree with any of that, all of that, uh, it is, I, I think, Martin Luther, we can look back and say, yeah, that, that sanity part especially. And so what we do is that we sometimes begin to use illustrations. And, and I'm going to mention two that are frequently used, and I want to show you that they're they're wrong, and I'm not trying to burst bubbles. I am not trying to point out people. I want you to know that I used these exact ones early in my ministry. And I thought, well, you know, this is a good illustration for kids and for youth. And it wasn't until I kind of really sunk into, okay, wow, this is wrong. This is not really a good explanation. So so if I say this, I'm not trying to hurt feelings. I'm trying to just direct us. I told Carly this morning, I said, I, you know, I don't really know if really people desire theology anymore. And instead of just, you know, five steps to a better husband or this, that, and the other. But guys, I believe, I truly believe that we live in a day and time when we need solid biblical theology more than ever. That there's more little twists and turns. It's been that way since the very beginning of Christianity, especially the Trinity. You're talking about some arguments. Go back all the way to the very, very beginning and see some of the first councils and some of the deepest discussions they had were over this very matter of the Trinity. And and, and so there, it is one of these really, really difficult things. How do we explain that there's one God and yet three distinct persons? And so we use things like ice, vapor, and water, H2O. Okay, here's a glass of water, and if we freeze it, we have ice, and if we heat it up, it becomes vapor. And and while that seems, okay, it's all H2O, but it's three different forms. The problem with that is that those are three different modes of the same thing. They're not distinct. It's what theologians would call modalism, okay? And it's a mistake that we make oftentimes. I've used that illustration many, many years ago when I was trying to, you know, in my frustration, how do you explain the Trinity to, to third graders? And and I told Carly this morning, I said, I, I'm telling you because, you know, she's back there with the fours and I think the threes and fours or the fours and fives this morning. And I said, I want you to tell them about the Trinity. Explain to them the Trinity. So you can ask Carly if that was successful or not. The other one that we use is sometimes, uh, it, it seems real, that here I am a person. Uh, I'm the son of my father. I'm the husband of Carly. And I've got two kids, and so I'm a father. It, why isn't that a good thing? One person. Yeah, those are different modes. 
Again, it's modalism. It's, it's one of those things that that's not really what the Trinity is. Now, you don't have to raise your hand if you've ever used either one of those because it's our desperate attempt to try to think something that is so complex, so over the top of our minds that we try to say, okay, maybe it's a little bit like this. And yet we have to be very, very careful. So hear that not so much as, you know, this, uh, you know, destructive correction as much as it is how do we explain the Trinity? How do we take something so complex, so mind-blowing, so beyond description and example? I would challenge you to do this. I would challenge you to explain the Trinity in this way. Just use what the Bible says, basically. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists in three persons. These three persons are all equally God and all equally persons, yet there's only one God. That's the Trinity. If we would take all that the Bible says, this is what the Trinity is, and yet it's not an illustration. It's not something like, well, it's like uh, you know an egg, or it's like the sun and the rays of the sun. All of those have been used throughout, really, since Christianity came about to try to explain this complexity. Folks, I'm always going to preach to you as intelligent folks. I'm always going to preach to you in my deficiency in the sufficiency of what the Holy Spirit's going to tell you. That even in, if I do something wrong, that I, I pray that the Holy Spirit's going to correct that in your spirit, in your mind, in your ears, and what you're hearing. Without that, I can't get up and preach. Because I, I'm prone that I'm going to go back and in my desperate attempt to make it so real that I'm going to fall into teaching you bad theology. And so we're just going to try to stick with the word and just, okay, God, if it's difficult to imagine how three distinct people can be one God, then let God keep us in awe. Let God just blow us our minds away. You know the commercials? The guy's heads explode? Let him do that in a spiritual way. That we stand in awe and we say, okay, God, I don't completely understand it. I certainly can't explain it, but I have put my faith in it. That you are the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, and yet you're one God. And it's that simplicity and that complexity that we often see in biblical things. The reason I say that this morning is not just to pick on that one uh, vantage point of the, the Trinity, but it comes up because as we look at Isaiah 9, 6, and we see that Isaiah is, is prophesying four different titles that this Messiah will have. We see that one of them, he calls him the everlasting father. Now, let's go to Isaiah 9, 6 and read what Isaiah wrote. He said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And one of the things that we would begin to understand if we've been in the Bible a little bit and we are familiar somewhat with the Trinity is, why is Isaiah calling Jesus a father when we know that he has come and he's God's son? I mean, have you ever wondered about that when you look at those titles? Is he confused? Is he just kind of shooting out there? And what does he mean by that? In fact, some people would have taken this to the extreme and used it, this very verse to promote 
uh, that God is not a trinity, uh, but rather unity. There's this uh, movement out there that's called the oneness movement. They deny the trinity, uh, but see Jesus is the, in unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There are so many different versions of the trinity that are not biblical in their basis. And I just want to make sure that we understand when all of a sudden we come upon a, a place like this and go, okay, well, what is Isaiah trying to tell us? How do we explain the uses in the title of this prophecy? First, it is not the reasoning behind Isaiah in the context of what he's saying. He's not trying to be uh, explain the Trinity, okay? He's not trying to make this theological statement here. Secondly, his argument, this context, is where Israel is at the moment. Remember that we said that Israel was uh, in a place where they were under the Assyrian Empire? Now, Israel is going to be right over there, kind of. You know, we, we look down there where Jerusalem is, see where the brown is? And, and the Assyrian Empire has come in. Now, these are the people of God. And yet, God has allowed, in his sovereignty, the Assyrians to come in. And we just sing about it. O captive Israel. We just sing that about, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And they were captive. There was a dark time. If you go back and you read the beginning verses of chapter 9, he talks about how light is going to come into the darkness. This promise of Jesus. But they're living in very, very dark times. They're in exile and darkness. And so they have fears. Let's think about if this was us. Let's just put ourselves in that position for a second. And all of a sudden, we're in exile. Because two of the feelings that you have that are very, very strong is your spiritualism and your nationalism. Okay, and I would hope that you would always put your spiritualism <laughs> over your nationalism. But but somewhere in this, you know, proud to be American, proud of whatever nation we're from. If you're from another nation, there's a heritage that you have there. And so part of our identity is, yes, I'm from Jamaica. I'm from this. And so you, you have a, a tie to that. And what if all of a sudden both your spiritualism and your nationalism is threatened? That's where the Jewish people are. They're wondering if they're going to be able to pass on to their children and then to their grandchildren the freedom that they have had, that they were the nation, the people of God. They had fears that their children and grandchildren would not know their heritage. They have fears that Israel of old is just a former imagination. And most of all, they have fears that the covenant that God had made with them, with Abraham, has been broken forever. Can you can you kind of place yourself in that? If all of a sudden America was taken over and all of a sudden uh, the very threat of Christianity and, and you wondered, okay, how am I going to pass this on to my children when we're not even this nation? And again, I think that uh, the American nation is going to be quite different from the Israel nation, okay? I'm not trying to make an equality there. But do you kind of see where they're coming, the dark times that they're living in? They don't see a future. They don't see a hope. And their hope isn't just their own lives. Their hope are their children and their grandchildren. How many grandparents do we have here this morning? Do you get that? Does does legacy, you know, that's the word that God gave me when my first grandchild was born. He just spoke to me. I I didn't hear it audibly. I I knew it as, as if he did say it audibly. Legacy. And all of a sudden, the future mattered even more. Can any grandparent identify with that a little bit? 
You know, that it was already important. Your children are important. But all of a sudden, you, you begin to see the length of things because you begin to see, okay, man, now my children, and now my grandchildren, and then great-grandchildren. And all of a sudden, your mind began to see, man, just, if we don't pass on truth, how vulnerable. What, what kind of world are they going to live in? What kind of truth is going to exist in their lives? Well, you don't have to be a parent or even a grandparent to wonder about that. You could be here this morning in, in, in your teens or, or in your 20s, not married, and still wonder, oh my goodness, what kind of, what's going to happen to this world? But we begin to understand where they're coming from. I, I want to maximize, not minimize, the spiritual component of that. In their sin and in their rebellion, Israel also recognizes that it would be very just for God to just say, okay, you blew it to be my people. Have you ever felt that before? <laughs> that God in his justice easily could just say, you blew it, I gave you opportunity, but you haven't been you know, 100% faithful to me, so I, I just I discard you. You may have felt that, but if you're a Christian this morning, it's not a reality if you've placed your faith and your trust in the work of Christ. Because God did provide a faithful one for our unfaithfulness. That's the whole point of what Isaiah is saying. It's the context there that God gives Isaiah a promise through this prophecy that one day a Messiah would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. But why use the word Father? Well, let's go back and let's just see what that is. In the Hebrew, if we just kind of directly translated, it would be Father of Eternity. Could that fit Jesus? Father of Eternity. We know that he's always existed. He didn't show up just because he clothed himself in flesh 2,000 years ago. That's not when Jesus began. The Bible makes it very very clear that eternity passed, that, that Christ is there. Father in this description is the primary noun. Everlasting is the term that describes this fatherhood. So why doesn't he just say, like a son instead of a father? Because it's the very nature, this everlasting, he's going to display himself. He's going to show us kind of from a fatherly love and obedience and commitment to us. That's where we begin to see this working out. We see it in the next verse, in verse 7, when it says that the Messiah, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That he's going to love us like a father. It doesn't say that he is the father. It's just it's a, a description, a noun there, that begins to show us kind of the nature of this Messiah and how long it's going to last. It's going to last forever and ever. Now, has Christ always existed? Yes. Okay, let's go. So he's internal in nature, but the word that he uses here is more of a sense that just isn't looking backwards and forwards. Is, is this true right here of Jesus Christ, of his existence, This what we show there? Okay, so we agree that this is biblically consistent described that Christ's going in both directions for all eternity. Eternity past, eternity future. Okay, we agreed. This particular context, let's go to the next one, everlasting, He's putting the emphasis going forward. He's not denying that Christ has always existed. This isn't the point that Isaiah is making. 
What he's trying to say is, look, in this place of no hope where you wonder what the future is, I want you to know that God is sending the Messiah and he has already figured out the future. Does that make sense? Are we saying that Christ did not exist in the past? Thank you. Okay. Just want to make sure. Man, my, my pastor got up there today and said, Christ didn't like existing in the past. He did. That's not the point that Isaiah is making, though. The emphasis here is a prophecy going forward. So it's not that he's denying the eternal nature. He's just pointing to the forward, and he's looking to the eternity in the future, how that this Messiah is going to solve a problem, not for a day and time, but forever. Have you ever solved a problem for a day and a time? And then had to come back and solve that problem again on another day and another time? We've all had to do that. I was working on plumbing this week in my house. And I fixed it. But guess what? There will be a day, if we stay in that house, that I'll have to fix that toilet again. I fixed it, but then you're going to have to fix it again. What Isaiah is saying is here, God is sending one who's an everlasting father. He's going to solve something and he's going to solve it forevermore. Looking for it. Everlasting. Okay, so we've got that. That word everlasting has the idea of perpetuity, no end. We're not saying that Christ is not eternal. We're not denying that all things have been made, were made by Christ. I mean, that's what John says. John says in John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Paul writes it like this to the Colossians in 1, 16, for all things were created by him. Okay, so we're not denying those things. But what we're saying is that there's a hope that will come in the future that will last for all eternity. Now, with that in mind, let's see the beauty of this promise and this prophecy. One of the greatest fears that we have in life is that we will lose something that we have worked for. It's a very human understanding, but you've worked for something. Have you ever wondered as you approach retirement for those that are a little bit older that you worked all your life? And have you ever crunched the numbers? And in your calculations, go, okay, this should be sufficient. Have you ever known somebody that worked the numbers and all of a sudden life happened and those numbers weren't sufficient? Have you ever wondered deep in your heart that that could happen to you? Let's take another human event. You say, I do. You love this man. You love this woman. Till death do us part. Have you ever wondered? Will it be until death do us part? I mean, something that we worked hard for, that we invested in, that we gave our hearts and our minds to? Has there ever been a wonderment of what happens if I lose that? That's the situation that Israel is in. They're God's people. God has made a covenant with them. It's eternal in nature, and yet they're feeling the stress of that. Because why? They look out the doors, and there's the Assyrian army, guys. They're captive. It's dark days. Go back and read the beginning verses of Isaiah 9. And yet a promise in that darkness that a light will come. They feared for their children and their grandchildren that they would not know the nation or the heritage that that they had known. In the midst of that fear and darkness, God promised that he would bring this light and keep his covenant forever. 
You see, it was through this Messiah, the Christ, that God would permanently establish his covenant with us. He's already done that, but they felt the friction of that. And yet we see the reality of Christ, if you want to say it this way, in very simplistic, uh, simplistic terms, he solves the problem permanently by his life, death, and resurrection. And it's through this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we begin to see the New Testament writers like Paul putting it into action. Let me give you a couple of examples of that, okay? Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Look what Paul writes. And which now has been what? Manifest. Okay, so this, okay, you, you've seen this happen. This is this has worked before you through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel. Do you understand what Paul's saying there? Christ in his work, now you've seen this become manifested before you. This isn't just a, a prophecy of old. You've seen it happen. You lived in the days. You heard about this Jesus. You saw him hang on a cross. You saw an empty tomb for some that would have been there and seen that whole sequence. And the New Testament writers begin to, to write in, in, in that application and in that sense. Look what the writer of Hebrews said. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Now look at verse 15. And deliver all those through fear who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see what the New Testament writers are? They're looking back at the, the work of Christ. Okay, here was your condition. And here's how the work of Christ solved that. In this case, this fear of death. You're in lifelong slavery to what, what happens after we take our last breath. Christ has solved that. Now you know. Let's look at one more. Paul writing to the Corinthians. 1554, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then the mortal puts on, and, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now look at the verses that follow that. Paul moves from a future application to a present application. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, you see that? Now look at verse 58. What's the first word? Therefore, application. Here's theological truth. Here's what's happening. Here's what Jesus did. And here's how it applies to your life. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Folks, that is good news. For people who live in a fear of losing something, God says in Christ you have a future. 
We just finished Revelation 21, 22. If we don't have this work of Christ, folks, we don't have Revelation 21 and 22. Cross it out. Rip it out of you, the pages of your Bible. Not trying to, to, to be, you know, bold there. I'm just saying, you, you don't have the fullness as we wait the second advent if the first advent didn't happen. And that's what Isaiah is pointing to, a people that are in darkness. They're wondering if their children and grandchildren are going to have a nation, if they're going to have a heritage. Most importantly, are they going to have a covenant with holy God? And he says, God is sending someone that is the keeper of the covenant. This is our hope. What a desperation of humanity when we try to hold on to God. Have you ever tried to do that? This vain attempt for us to hold on to God. And maybe on our best days, maybe on our best days, we can at least reach out, but oh my goodness. Folks, it was never about how strong your grip was. It was never about what is your ability to achieve holiness in your life, to satisfy the demands of a holy God. It was always God seeing our need and our desperation, our darkness, our wondering, are we going to lose it all? And sending a Messiah of light that would accomplish what you and I could never accomplish. In the application, he says, therefore, my brothers, because this has happened, because there's not a sting of death to those who are Christians, be immovable. Be steadfast. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that this is secure. Your place with Christ is secure if you put your faith and trust in Him. Does that make a difference in your life today? In a darkened world, When you do fear the world that your children and grandchildren will live in, does it make a difference that Christ has overcome? The Messiah would come and address our greatest problem, our sin. He would address our greatest fear, death of and, and losing something. But get this, he would do so in the nature of a father. He's not the Father. But he would do it with the nature of the Father. Now, this is very prophetic of Isaiah because this would have been foreign to the Israelites of old. They didn't even want to pronounce the name of God. To think of God in a fatherly sense and a sense of, of that kind of intimacy would have been so far above them. And so this prophecy isn't that the Messiah is going to be the Father in a Trinitarian view. No, but that the nature of Jesus would show us the nature of God in this fatherly sense. Does that make sense? Nobody ever showed us with our eyes and with our understanding, the nature of the fathers of, of our Father God than Jesus. I mean, really, if you go back, and I wish I had time to go back and do all First Corinthians 15, because to put it in context, to go back, he talks about the two Adams. He talks the first Adam brought you death. Remember the first Adam, Adam and Eve? And he's being theological in this. You're smart people. And he goes, okay, what the first Adam brought you was death. I want you to know that the second Adam brought you life. 
The second Adam is Christ. When the first Adam brought you sin and death, the second Adam, as our Father, brings us life and eternity. Folks, no one revealed the nature of God as a Father more than Jesus. The nature of his protection, the nature of his providing, nobody has ever done that like Jesus. And that's what Isaiah means by everlasting Father. It's one of the central messages of the New Testament. The term father is used 165 times in the New Testament. Even Jesus says, you know, you can pray this as your model prayer. Our father, which art in heaven. In Isaiah's time, they would have gone, no, no, no. We don't use those kind of words to describe God. We're going to get in trouble. Paul uses the, the term father 45 times in his letters. It's one of the most vivid displays of the power of the gospel. A picture that the Old Testament saints could hardly even imagine, but we who live in the New Testament in the church age and in the age awaiting the second advent that we get to partake of. That in the darkness of my moment, in the time that I have the fear of things just slipping away, that I can cry out, that you can cry out, Oh, Father, Father in heaven. And this intimacy was brought to us by Jesus Christ. Something that the early church fathers marveled in, guys. They didn't just sit around with their theological minds. I mean, they did that. But they marveled at the fatherly aspect of God. Romans 8.15 for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Without the work of Christ, you don't get that, guys. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, John said it this way, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. We don't get that without the finished work of Christ. We don't get this without Him coming and bringing light into the darkness of our lives. Just to be clear, let, let me say it this way. Jesus is not the father of the Trinity, but will accomplish the work that he was sent to do like a father. I, I think if I just had to put it down to a phrase, in my opinion, that's what Isaiah is telling us. What hope we have in the second advent Now, as we conclude this morning, here's my... People, we love sermons that have direct application and put into action. Four ways to better love your wife. Six ways to a happier family. And there is nothing wrong with those if they're done biblically and based on biblical principles. They're very useful. And I get our desire to have something that we can participate in. How I can love my wife better because of these principles that I could apply to my life. But folks, as much as we want action steps of what we can do, please realize that this prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy, is on what Christ would do. 
Not some ladder that we climb up by our strength and by our grip and our ability to achieve really holy things for a holy God. No, we are helpless, guys. We're helpless. And so Isaiah promises by the word of God in this prophecy that there is one coming that will accomplish this. Please realize this morning that without what Christ would do, it is pointless of what we could do. Pointless. So is there an application then to this text, this prophecy? Yes. And that is the simplicity of this. When we put our faith and our trust in the work of Jesus Christ, we can rest in his sufficiency. Means we just live however we want? No. But how many of you this next week think that you need to be resting in the sufficiency of Christ? As you're trying to grab, you know, climb up the holiness ladder and trying to, to touch the hem of the garment of holy God. To know that Christ has accomplished that and you can rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Yeah, Bobby, I, I just want something a little bit more practical. Guys, if you don't get that, the practical doesn't matter. If we don't get that, it doesn't matter how you love your wife. Maybe for a week, a month, or a year, or for 40 years, but we're never going to be able to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Had he not done what he did, folks, that enables us because then this other member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells within us. And guess what? He allows me to love my wife, my selfishness put aside so that I can love my wife like Christ loved the church. Can Bobby do that just by having a goal? Maybe this much. But I have the power of the very Spirit of God within me. Because I'm a really good man and I did some really good things. No, because Christ was the everlasting Father. And he fulfilled the requirement of our sinfulness by his perfection. And he willingly died in our place so that all of those that God has chosen and elected and and placed their trust and their faith in him would know life to the full. We can rest in that. But there's also another application. In the worship that God did, that God would love so much, that's what inspires us to holiness. Remember what it said back there in that passage? Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable. Why? Because you're strong people? No, because we see this God who is so sufficient to meet our need. Now we can rest in that, but in that all-wondering worship, it inspires us to holy living. Does that make sense? Everlasting Father. Is Isaiah confused about the Trinity? No, he's not making a Trinitarian statement. He's this wonderful counselor, this mighty God. Next week, this Prince of Peace, this everlasting Father. I'm going to send one who is so sufficient to meet the need. 
that darkness will be turned to light. Hopelessness will be turned to hope because he will be sufficient to meet the need before a holy God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, what a difficult, difficult thing to try to explain. Anything, anytime, Father, that involves the Trinity, Father, anytime that it involves uh, something that just begins to blow our mind. But I so trust you this morning, Father, that I just pray that we've been obedient to your word. And, Father, I pray that we would be able to gain application this morning. And that application, Father, would be the sufficiency of Christ. That whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're losing hope with, whatever dark places in our life exist, that we would see that maybe you're not going to fix every one of those in the immediacy. But Father, you sent one in our spiritual darkness, in our spiritual lack of hope. You are a covenant keeper when we were covenant breakers. Let us rest in the sufficiency of Christ this morning. Father, I know that there are some here that are physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. Father, will you fill them with this hope of Christ, with the sufficiency of what Christ has done, so that they will raise up and be able to to run like wings of eagles? Father, that's the application. Not that all of a sudden we're going to get a $1,000 check in the mail tomorrow and it's going to solve the financial need. Not all of a sudden that the wayward husband is going to come home and, and beg for mercy and forgiveness. Not that everything in our lives are suddenly just going to be fixed, but Father, that you have fixed that which we could never fix. That Father, you have made a way when there was no way. That you provided one to forgive us of our sin when we could never achieve sinlessness on our own. Father, let us rest this Advent season. Father, let us rest in the sufficiency of Christ. We pray this in the power of his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.